I went into this project wanting to show a way to release and heal pain through sensual dance. And I had no idea how much pain there was, which all came to the surface as I was filming. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Michelle O'Hayan is on the show. Born in Casablanca, Morocco, and raised in Israel, Michelle is an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. Michelle made her first film at age 19 and immigrated to Los Angeles, where she has directed and produced numerous acclaimed documentary features. Michelle has also written screenplays developed by studios such as MGM, Focus Films, and Stars. She is also a guest lecturer at UCLA, AFI, USC, Georgetown, Wesleyan, Stanford, and Chapman. Given her extensive experience in film, this won't come as a surprise, but Michelle is also a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Michelle's documentaries include It Was a Wonderful Life, narrated by Jodie Foster, about homeless women in America, Academy Award-nominated Colors Straight Up, Steal a Pencil for Me, Cowboy Delamore, SOS State of Security, and Christina about Michelle's close friend who had cancer at age 37 and only five months to live, which is still streaming on Netflix. Michelle's most recent film is the Netflix Cinema Verite documentary Strip Down, Rise Up, which follows the journey of a diverse group of women who heal trauma and body image issues through sensual movement and the art of pole dance. Michelle made the film to inspire healing of all women through movement. In this interview, we talk about Michelle's journey from Israel to Los Angeles and the logistics of funding, producing, and directing documentaries. We also talk about Michelle's career in screenwriting and producing for major studios, what compelled her to shoot a documentary on the therapeutic power of pole dancing, and the challenges of this particular shoot. I love it when interviews go beyond the guest's biography and touch on subjects that are challenging to navigate. And this is one of those interviews. And one of those challenging subjects was the male gaze, and how the male gaze can objectify and even traumatize women. In this chat, we discuss how part of the journey for some of the women in Strip Down Rise Up involves moving through and even nullifying the male gaze by taking ownership of their own sensuality. As a man who has never been on the receiving end of that type of objectification, it was enlightening to see that issue unfold in the film and also hear Michelle's perspective on this theme that runs throughout the documentary. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Michelle O'Hayan. Michelle O'Hayan, welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you so much. We're here to talk about your new film on Netflix, Strip Down, Rise Up. I watched it. Very moving experience. I was not expecting that. I really didn't know what to expect, actually, when I first turned it on. But it brought me to tears several times, especially during the scenes where there was basically just emotional breakdown that was happening, almost like a therapy session in these dance classes. What was your intention going into this project in terms of the narrative that you wanted to capture and the story you wanted to tell? I went into this project wanting to show a way to release and heal pain through sensual dance. And I had no idea how much pain there was, 
which all came to the surface as I was filming. I mean, as a documentarian, the style that I film, Cinema Verite, which is basically you're a fly on the wall and you're observing and the scenes unfold in front of your lens. And if you're so lucky, you catch them. And so as we started filming and, be, and women started sharing why they wanted to be in this room and why they wanted to move their bodies, there was a great sense of community that was created right there and then between the women, which allowed them to be able to share deeper and deeper into their issues, which we, no one knew was going to happen. And once they felt that they were not alone and other women had other issues they were dealing with, they were feeling safe both with the surroundings and with us, the cameras. Uh, we were a fly on the wall and um, we created a very strong trust. We were all women in the room. My crew was all women and it just evolved. And it was really amazing to see how much women have suffered and are still suffering um, in this century. Uh, the numbers have not gone down and whether it's a real sexual abuse case or just an offense that we had in our childhood. Somebody says a remark and you start feeling shame about your body, about showing your body, about your breast, about whatever it is, you know, I'm too fat, I'm too skinny. It, it's, it's stuck in the body. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that about them. I didn't know that about myself. And it was an amazing learning experience and rewarding to see how much healing happened throughout the film and because of the film. It sounds like a pretty organic experience in terms of how this unfolded and how you found this project, as opposed to you're a director and a producer and you get pitched an idea. Hey, how about this? It, it sounds like you kind of found this organically. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Yeah, so usually I don't uh, look for, for projects. Somehow I know it's going to come to me from life. I was actually asked by my daughter to join her uh, for a pole class because the pole class, you know, it's, it's fitness and we're both very athletic. So we were like, yeah, let's try. And so we went uh, to a very shady studio in LA <laughs> and we were like, we were giggling the whole time, but it was a good workout. And, and we decided, well, let's explore some more. And we went uh, from studio to studio, not always together, but I, until I came to S-Factor, uh, which was founded by Sheila Kelly. And that was when the circle happened. None of the studios had a circle. You know, you come in, you warm up, you climb the pole, and whatever it is, you do, which was fun, but different. And the circle is where the light bulb moment happened because women were sharing, I'm here to do this, and I'm here to get rid of shame, and I'm here to love my body, and I'm here to love what I see in the mirror. And I realized that it, pole and sensual dance was much more than just a workout. It is really a healing tool. Mm -hmm. And so I took that idea. I researched some more. I went to Netflix. I pitched the idea. They loved it. They said, go do some more research. Come back with the actual characters and the subjects that you want to follow. And I did that for six months. And I came back and got a green light. Pretty much it was one of the smoothest paths in my 35-year career that never happened. <sighs> in terms of the uh, cinematography and the lighting and the balance that you undoubtedly had to strike between trying not to exploit these women for the sensational aspect of the title of the film and the realism, you want that realism, but you also want to be respectful of 
their body image. What were you thinking about in terms of the cinematography, the folks that you were hiring, the subjects of the film, the conversations that you were having with them so that they were feeling safe to be filmed? Well, let me start by saying that every film is the same issue as your, it's not an issue, but it is a matter of trust. As a documentarian, it, you, you have to have integrity about your subject. I was never interested in sensational, in none of my films. So that wasn't even an issue. Uh, when I approached Sheila Kelly, she was worried about that because she has been approached before. And when she allowed filming, that's what happened. They were like, oh, take, take off some more clothes, do this. And so she's like, I don't want any filming. It took me six months to convince her that this is a different story. This is an in-depth documentary. This is a character-driven piece. And um, one thing that was in my way in that particular studio is they had no lights, only little red lights and no mirrors. And everybody was dancing for themselves in the dark. And I can't film in the dark. So what we did to solve that particular problem is to start a class of beginners, knowing that they're coming to a class, knowing that they were going to be filmed, that there will be some light. I didn't want too bright lights because I wanted them to feel comfortable and safe, but enough that I can capture it on film. And so they knew coming in that they were going to be filmed. And uh, again, this is really, um, you can manipulate anything you want in the editing room, but that wasn't the idea. And even the title that you mentioned, stripped down is not stripped down clothed. It's actually stripped down of any emotions and issues that are holding you back right. and rise up, not only on the pole, but rise up to be the best person you can be. And that is what the title means. So there's really not much sensation about it. Although I can understand why people might think so. Yeah, I think that there's probably a very quick learning curve for people that click on the title right. and very quickly realize what the film is about. And it is a metaphor, that title. And it is um, a beautiful metaphor because I think what you see literally happening before your eyes is this therapeutic, as you say, shedding of stigma and shame and self-esteem issues and trauma that all of these women carried with them. And it's remarkable. I mean, one of my, well, my day job, I'm a trial lawyer and I represent survivors of sexual abuse throughout the country. And so for me, it really hit differently because I know the statistics. I know how many people are sexually abused, men and women, but unfortunately women share the brunt of that. I think they're targeted more for d domestic violence. They're, they're sexually abused more as children. As a result, they carry with them this lifetime of trauma yeah. and it manifests in all kinds of ways. Yes. And in this film, you really see it being shedded and Sheila is the facilitator in these classes. Right. And it, you know, it doesn't always land. Obviously, one of the class participants left during the, during the filming. And <laughs> yes, it's not for everyone, for sure. I think she expected uh, just a pole class and she wanted to move around and dance. And that's completely great. And that's why I'm showing the other side of pole, which is the competitive side in other studios in, right. say, in San Francisco. Uh, one is led by a former sex worker turned lawyer and uh, now a pole competitor and studio owner. So you, you have that side of pole. I wanted to show as much as possible uh, into this world and break that stigma that it's only strip club. Now, side note, strippers did come up and invented the sensual pole movement, the sensual pole 
tricks, right. but they have not taken it to the level of competition unless they switch to being competitors. It was done for the male gaze. And my film is exactly about not dancing for the male gaze, but dancing for yourself, for healing and for shedding or getting rid of shame. And that, that was very important. To- I, I love that term, Michelle. Sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, I've heard that throughout the film a couple of times, the male gaze. And I think one of the sentences was the problem is the male gaze. And that's where it starts because that's what defines them is that objectification through the lens of the man and what he is wanting out of that connection. What I love about this film is the women take charge of their own image and their own sensuality. Exactly. And it makes the male gaze sort of irrelevant at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Once you remove that from the equation, then women and that feel safe. And that is why I had a mostly all-female crew when I could. There are not a lot of documentary DPs who are women, unfortunately. And so I, most of the time, even my sound was a woman, uh, assistant camera was a woman, production coordinator was a woman. I wanted them to feel safe so that there is no male gaze, even though my crew would not be interested in still right. a male presence. Uh, but to be honest, a few weeks into it, the, the, the women didn't even see us anymore. It wouldn't even matter if it was a guy or whatever. They just, uh, they were so much into their own journeys that they, we, and we were there every uh, three weeks, we would drop into a class and spend the whole day and see their transformation. Uh, we, and that went on for six months. Um, so that, that was very, I mean, look, you brought up the sexual abuse, Megan, who was uh, sexually abused by Larry Nassar, the famous Larry Nassar was put away. She was abused at the age of 15. And when she came to class, she was 27. And she, it took her that long to, she pushed everything away for all these years. She tried to deal with it, of course, with therapy and other things. But the fact that she had to be a witness in the trial brought all the trauma back. And that's why she joined the class. And I had no idea how much she was going to share or not share. Right. And she felt very safe. I remember seeing her in the sentencing hearing. I mean, she. Yes, right. Yeah, she was a big part of that case. And yeah, she was one of the 300. Yeah, the damage that that guy did to, I mean, a generation of athletes, it's just insane. Yeah, totally. And, and that, that was her dream. And her dream was shattered when she was injured. And the other thing was what the film was able to do is to bring her and her mother together because she says that her mother was in the room and she had no idea. And to me as a mother, just thinking about it, it just was shattering. And when her mother came to town, I said, Megan, can I please interview your mother? And she said, no way. She's not going to want to be interviewed. And plus, she may not know everything because part of Megan's journey was not, she didn't even tell her parents what was going on until she actually had to testify. She made that choice to testify. And that meant also to confront and share everything with her parents and cause them pain. She was trying to protect them as well. So this all came to the surface during the film. And when her mother came to town, I said, you know, let's, let's have a sit down. Let's, let's see what comes out. And her, the mother agreed, which was great. And that brought some peace to them. And that's the beauty of documentaries. That's why I continue doing it, even though it's really hard. It's the, the, those moments that are beyond the film, the moments that are, yes, it's captured on film, but it has a life a long life after the film. Those women, Megan and her mother, Jen, the teacher, and her parents, 
managed to heal the relationship because there was a camera in the room that gave them a window, an opportunity to bring it to the surface because it's hard to just sit down in front of each other and say, hey, let's talk about that day. It's hard. But when you have a reason, and the reason is to inspire other women, to show other women that they're not alone. And when you have that mission in your head, then it's not, not longer about just you and your mother. It's about all the mothers and all the daughters. And I've seen that those cathartic moments happen over and over again when you fulfilled with, with a mission to, to heal others. And that's the beauty of, of in, in this film that happened in other films. Uh, and every time I see it, I'm like, that will never happen in a feature film. When you have an actor, when you have actors in the scripted material, that will never happen. So that's why I'm still doing it. What were your thoughts when Sheila brought in the men to the studio? to serve as symbols of safe masculinity. And what were your thoughts shooting that scene? Nicely put. Sheila warned me that it was going to be heavy because um, we, she asked the women to use the male figure to release anything they, they had, whether it was joy or pain, by the way. It doesn't have to be pain. And so we knew that it was going to be uh, something they needed to resolve. So, for example... Lisette, one of the women, said, I never came out when my father was around and I'm doing it now. This is facilitating that. It was hard. Some, some of us in the room had to leave because it was very moving and it touched upon our own lives. And so we, you know, sometimes we would excuse a crew member to go outside and recover and come back and rotate. It was very hard to watch and definitely hard to film. And was your choice of a male editor intentional to yes. to kind of have a, a male perspective in terms of cutting the film? Definitely, definitely. It was a very conscious decision. Since I have, I was surrounded by women. I was like, <laughs> okay, let's get a man in here, yeah. and let's see what they think. And when Edward Osijama, who's first of all, I chose him not because he's male, but because he has a great cinematic eye, and I've worked with him before, and I know how good he is. So when I brought him in, I showed him the footage and he was blown away. He said, I'm an evolved man and I will never look at my wife the same way after watching this. I understand so many things that she had told me in the past, but I wasn't hearing it. Yeah. And so that was great to hear. That was the first male who saw the footage. And then we worked together and sometimes we were clashing because I was like, no, I, this is a, this is a female perspective, you know, that bottom line it is my vision and what was very important to me was that the women are not victims or if they are they will take a journey into becoming victors uh, that transition was very important and it's true in all my movies i i present a problem that causes us to be victims and then you uh, turn it into more of a journey to overcome right and that victory is extremely important yeah, I I think it's important for men to watch this film. I really do. I mean, I think it's it's great for all genders, all sexual identities. I mean, it, it's a across the board quality documentary filmmaking. But it's so important in terms of the message to men, especially this male gaze message because even if women have not suffered trauma, some acute trauma in their childhood or in their teens or young adulthood or any time they're all subject to that. Correct. The male gaze, which I think in a way is a micro trauma. 
you know, it's it's a it's a microaggression. Totally. And it's something that they obviously carry with them because you see it on the screen and you hear it in their voices. There is also a lot of when you deal with sensuality and eroticism, there's always this big taboos that come up, whether it's from religion or societal or cultural. And so, but it, it mostly plays out for women. Uh, and they are those first encounters when, let's say, your daughter is seven years old and she goes to the beach and she's not wearing a top. Who cares? She's seven years old. People are going to ask to cover up. And that creates shame right there. Yeah. There's nothing to cover up. What is the so you this this you know it's it's a one-sided vision. And we don't look at men ex, I mean, we look at them also as a sexual object, but we don't look at them the in a in a condescending way or in an ownership kind of way. We don't want to own your body, we want to utilize it for our pleasure <laughs> and want to utilize our bodies for pleasure, but that doesn't mean you own it. And that is where the boundaries are. I want to show what I, what God gave me. Doesn't mean you want to, you have to touch it. Mm -hmm. And again, those are the boundaries that were erased in all these years and generation. And so many cultures still there. Yeah. You know, that we, we know, we know those cultures. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place. Our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com slash newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. What were your challenges in terms of the character studies here? Because you're talking to Sheila, and Sheila obviously has a studio, and she's she has a certain amount of accessibility, but then you have the classmates, the students, and they have their lives they're living. I mean, Evelyn's working at, you know, candy store and she's got her busy schedule, but you have to have access to these people and you have to tell their story. How did you approach that as a filmmaker? So because we started the film, uh, the class, the beginner's class for the film, and uh, just uh, side note, the, another reason was that I wanted to show their transformation as it happens so that the audience can witness together with me as they progress because other students have gone already through the transformation. I couldn't show it. I would just hear about it, which is not enough. Mm -hmm. So they knew that they were going to be filmed. I had uh, the women who started sharing in the circle came to the forefront. And I understood that those are the women that are willing to tell their stories and tell it in a truthful way and not just, you know, sound bites for the camera. And so I started to follow them around uh, like Evelyn. We you know, exchanged phone numbers. She knew I would interview them after class. So we had already a rapport. And I would tell them, if something happens in your life, please give me a call and I'll be there with my camera. If there's something, you know, for example, Allison in San Francisco, this is not a, a factor. She's one of the competitors, the one who said, you know, my husband doesn't want me to have an Instagram. And right. So she called me. I was in LA and she said, Michelle, I something is gonna blow up in my marriage because my husband found out my Instagram account. So mm -hmm. get your crew over here. And I couldn't get there fast enough because you know it's 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 a production. But uh, she alerted me that that was gonna happen. And so when I came there, we 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 talked about it and we exposed it and we went deeper into it. I had no idea that was gonna happen. She didn't know he was gonna find her Instagram. 
So it's unfortunate, but at the same time, from a filmmaker standpoint, what a, a nugget <laughs> that you were given there—a golden nugget of uh, cinematic um, narrative, cinematic moment where you know the husband. I mean, we're wanting that to happen. We're rooting for her. We're like, get rid of this guy, <laughs> and it actually <laughs> right. happens, and he leaves. And it's a it's a great moment in the film. But as a filmmaker, you have to just be elated when things like that happen that really help tell the story in a compelling way. Yes. I, you know, you're kind of betting on some stories that you think intuitively are going to pan out. You don't know anything. Right. But having, you know, 35 years experience, you kind of start sensing who is going to be open to have change in their lives during this year that I was filming. Mm -hmm. And Allison was definitely one of them. Evelyn was another. I didn't know that she was going to find her dead husband's phone. And on the phone, she would find pictures of another woman naked. Yeah, that's another one. Another moment. I'm like, what? I have no idea. You can't make this up. (laughs) You can't make this up. You can't even write in a script. And that's where you have to be there. To be there, be there, be there, film and film and film and wait until something like this happens. And when it happens, of course, you feel bad on one hand because it's not a great revelation. But on the other hand, it's another step into their freedom, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's another step into their healing. Uh, for, for Evelyn, it was like, okay, you know, my, I, maybe I should, I will mourn him a little less because he wasn't as faithful. I mean, I'm just making it up, but you know what I mean? It's a, right. it's a release from guilt and that's what it is. And, and by the way, Allison's husband is still there. She was sure that once he sees the movie, it's going to be over, but she told him, take it, take it or leave it. I'm still dancing and I'm not, I'm going to post on Instagram and I'm going to compete and he's still there. So who knows? <laughs> oh, well, maybe he's starting to wake up a little bit. Maybe your film has something to do with that. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. And it's in every film, those, those moments are so precious. And like I said, they carry beyond the screen time. They carry into life. Yeah. I'm mostly in touch with most of the people I film. Like my second film in LA, in South Central, Color Straight Up, I'm still in touch with the kids that I filmed in Watts. They were anywhere between 13 and 20 at the time. Now they are in their forties, and we're still in touch. We're we're Facebook, you know, we're Facebook friends. It's just uh, the the film has affected their lives as much as mine, and that's the beauty of it. So, as a documentary filmmaker, I would think that it is an all-consuming, twenty-four-seven process. You know, in a television series, you have a certain number of days per week that you work. There's a schedule, and but as a documentary filmmaker has to be exhausting to be on the clock all the time and constantly be looking for those nuggets and those truths and the story that have to be revealed and come to the surface. Yeah, you have, you have no life. This film took three years between research and uh, filming for a year and then editing for a year, year and a half during COVID as well. We had to edit, which was tough. So you really have no life and you live the lives of the characters that you're filming. But for example, again, the same film called Straight Up in South Central, I just gave, I had a very young child and I told the kids, if you got, get, don't get in trouble, if you get in trouble, make sure to give me a call because I'm going to be there. And one of the kids called me from jail. It was in the middle of the night. Oscar called me and he said, I'm in jail. Can you, you know, come with a camera and check it out? And I, I, I didn't know what to do. I had to... I had I shoved my young daughter in, in the car seat and took her with me to freaking downtown LA in a scary prison 
to uh, where he was detained to to see what was going on. So it's you live with your subject in that there's no separation uh, af- until after you finish the film. So that's really a lifestyle that you're choosing as a documentary filmmaker. How do you fund that lifestyle? You went to film school in Tel Aviv, right? Yes. You moved to LA, I understand, and started, I think your first film was age 19. But how did you figure out the logistics of surviving, putting food on the table and paying the rent while you're waiting for these stories to unfold and capture them on uh, camera? So, you know, if you have a reasonable budget, you put aside a small amount for yourself, which is never enough, um, you know, and you, you think it's going to take two years and then it takes three years, but the salary carries over. <laughs> <laughs> you don't add money because I put as much as possible to the screen and it's always more than you think. Um, if You know, I also produce for other people. I consult on productions for other people. I love producing for directors who are very talented. Yeah, it gives me a lot of pleasure to guide them, to mentor them. Um, I also produce international productions that come here. I don't have to direct every single thing. If I am going to direct a film, then it is indeed everything I've got. And, um, you know, my, my kids know it and my partners know it and it's just how it is. And, you know, it's, uh, it is very, it's very tiring and that's why it took it takes time between movies. I don't do movies back to back. I mean, listen, there are other documentarians where for them, it's not exactly a lifestyle because the, they don't do cinema verite. They do a lot of interviews and archival. You know, you don't need to be in the field that much. The interviews are very controlled. They have a script. They have a thing. It's only when you choose to do what I do, which is the purest form in a way of documentaries, let the scenes unfold. That is very time consuming, yeah. both filming and editing. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, you know, it's not necessary. I, you know, I had movies that are a lot, a lot more contained than this. I did a movie with Rich Clark called SOS State of Security. He's the guy who wrote uh, Against All Enemies. And he told me, he talked about the failures of 9-11 when he was in government. That was a lot more contained, for example. Mm-hmm. But, but the surprises come in, those, in the verite style. So the verite style of filming, you've described it pretty well for my listeners, but it sounds like cinema verite is a hell of a lot more work, but a hell of a lot more rewarding too, in terms of the substance and the truths that are revealed in that process. I see a lot of documentaries these days on Netflix that are basically crime drama, very sensational, and they're interesting and compelling. But you're right. Those documentary filmmakers, talented people, but they go in after something has already happened. So they're really not capturing anything that's unfolding in real time. Happened in the past, yeah. Right. Completely different category. So cinema verite is something that you, you have to commit to for a prolonged period of time. I know you pitched this to Netflix. So going back to the logistics, is the deal with Netflix that they're going to give you a budget and then it's up to you to, number one, pay all of the crew, pay yourself, and make it last until the story is in the can? Well, it depends what kind of deal you have. Um, mine was like exactly what you described. Because I've worked with Netflix literally since day two, I've worked with them for 13 years. So they're very filmmaker-oriented and, and friendly. So they knew I was a responsible filmmaker and they don't have to sit on my head every, every moment. So they basically gave me a budget, but we work as a team. I, obviously, I need approval on 
selection of crew and I need approval on, on the budget that I'm creating. Uh, if something is glaring, they have, of course, something to say. But that, you know, when you're, when, I mean, you do this as long as I have, we, you know, you're very aligned. You know exactly what things are going to cost and what the unforeseen can be. And so that, that, that is how it works. Uh, in other instances, Netflix can come in and fund as you go uh, with a global number, of course, of budget that you want to hit. But mine, that was the number and that was it. But, you know, you write about there's, look, I, I'm hoping that my films are evergreen, you know, and they are still playing from movies from 20, 25 years ago. I have a, two movies on Netflix that are from many years ago, from 2007, and they are still playing. Um, so I think Netflix is, wants to have the whole range. And, uh, you know, my, my other film that's playing, Steal a Pencil for me, is about two Holocaust survivors who fell in love in the camps. And uh, there was not much I could show also because their love story happened in the past. So, and they were old. And so what do you, they barely move. Well, what do they, they go and have a cup of coffee and come back and sit down. What do you film, right? <laughs> so I decided to take them back to the camp in Holland and activate their memories. And that triggered... Um, you know, going back to the past. So every film has its own challenges. But basically, the, pro the thing, the challenge in documentary is that you're filming the present, which is already the past, the moment you filmed it. Right. And you're looking at the future moment uh, and hoping to capture that. And then it becomes the present. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with, with, with those time issues. And, but it's fascinating. So what called you to documentary filmmaking at such a young age, as opposed to narrative filmmaking? And I know you've worked developing scripts for major studios on narrative films before, but your directing experience seems to be really leaning into documentary. Was there a point in your life that pointed you in that direction, or how did that unfold? Well, first of all, thank you for doing your homework. I can't tell you how refreshing that is, <laughs> <laughs> and knowing a little bit about my background. So I started as completely wanted to do narrative films. I wasn't even thinking documentaries. I was fascinated by production, production value, equipment. My very first film was a narrative film in Israel. But when you have a reality, at that time it was Israel, that needs to be told. It was the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was brewing at the time. And I felt like I can't just make a movie about, you know, something that's irrelevant. There were burning issues under my feet that I needed to explore. And so I did my first documentary about an Arab actor trying to make it in Israel. And so when I came to Los Angeles, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to go into the Hollywood system and I'm going to make a feature film. And, and so the first thing I noticed when I came to LA was the homeless people. And I was shocked. I was like, how is it possible in the land of opportunities where I'm coming to fulfill my dreams, I see women on the street? How is that possible? In my country, it would never happen. And so I started to explore that. And then I made my first film, It Was a Wonderful Life, about women who fell through the cracks and lived out of their cars, but were hiding the fact that they were homeless because they were ashamed. And so that, you know, was narrated by Jodie Foster, Melissa Etheridge, the music, that was my very first film here in America. And then it led to another documentary. And you know how that goes. You become oh, yeah. a documentarian. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a storyteller, but bottom line. I'm a storyteller, whether it's documentary or a feature or television or podcast. 
it is not really important. Well, I do like to play with the medium of film because I have a lot more possibilities and toys and music and effects, and I love that. And so I, I'm always trying to go back to feature, but then there is a subject in documentary that kind of drags me back in. It seems like over the last decade that documentary filmmaking has really made a resurgence or become something having much more sizzle than it used to have. I mean, if you look at the film festival lineups, I don't know, the documentaries are just getting a lot more attention. You look at the Netflix availability, all of the streaming platforms, tons of documentaries out there, high quality, really well made. Ron Howard's producing them. These huge filmmakers are getting into documentaries. So I'm wondering for young filmmakers who are listening to this podcast or people that are aspiring to get into film, is documentary filmmaking a more accessible form of filmmaking that would allow them to get their foot in the door, learn about the industry, learn about cameras and lenses and storytelling? I think it depends. You know, some filmmakers really don't care about documentaries, no matter what. They just don't have that sense. They want to tell a story that's scripted. They want to work with actors. It's a whole different world. But those who can shuttle between the two worlds, worlds, yes, it is accessible because you can literally, like Sugarman, you can take your iPhone with your great camera and start filming. And that's what I always encourage to do. There's always excuses why not to make a movie or why not to film. Oh, I don't have enough money. I don't have a camera. I don't have a crew. I don't have actors. Those are just excuses. You can totally take your camera if you don't have access to a you know, more professional camera and start filming and experience your craft. You know, I haven't stopped filming since I was 19. I raised two children. You know, I was, you know, a wife and a daughter and a mother and everything. You can do it. You just have to make the time for it and focus on it uh, rather than find a way not to do it. And it's all about what story do you want to tell? Do you want to tell a story of a real person who is going through something? Or do you want to tell a story that you're creating that is, has your own beginning, middle, and end? Mm -hmm. Both you can do without means. Oh, gosh, there's so many actors that are not working here in, in, in this country, definitely in Los Angeles, that you can mobilize and say, hey, come and do my short film. Let's rehearse. Let's work. Even during COVID, you can do it. So I encourage everybody to just film and film and film and write and do and do. Gain experience. So when you get the chance to be in a room in the big studio, if you want that, then you know what you're talking about. You understand the language of film. Documentaries and fiction, they have a different language, but both have their own terms. It's not running around with the camera and capturing something. It's like, oh, I'm making a documentary. No, it's a craft. You have to know when to put the camera, when to move the camera, what kind of angles, what kind of lighting. We, we do it all in documentaries, even though we deal with real time. Hmm. And so it's harder because you have one take, and if you didn't catch it, you missed it. Yeah. It's not like, hey, well, let's do that again. Can you make it a little better this time or a little happier <laughs> or whatever? That doesn't happen. So in a way, documentaries are harder, but they are becoming much more popular thanks to the Netflixes of the world because they brought us into the, the, into the commercial world and people started watching it and streaming them because they're, they're not going to go to theater to see a documentary. That, that doesn't happen unfortunately. Even for the biggest, biggest film, like the Earl Morris, it's hard to get him to the theater for a documentary. So this is a perfect platform. You emigrated to uh, LA very early in your career. How important is it right now to be in LA now that we have Zoom and we have 
Atlanta and you know New York City. There's all kinds of filmmaking opportunities throughout the country. But how important is Los Angeles right now? Uh, right now, it's not necessary to be here at all. You can be anywhere in the world. Uh, you can create your content anywhere in the world. People are not afraid anymore of subtitles. I mean, look at the show Money Heist from Spain. It's huge and it's all subtitles and it's all created in Spain. So you don't really need to. Those borders have melted, uh, thankfully, in the last only few years, but they have melted. And you can see also the international films are making it to the mainstream. I'm on the executive committee of the Academy of Motion Pictures for international films. And I've seen evolving from you know, how many people, even in our Oscar Academy, how many people have been watching foreign films? And it's much more now than it used to be because there are great films coming out of the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this year I've watched 40 foreign films and most of them are better than the American films I've seen. So the openness to subtitles and languages and shows, um, you really do not have to be here. <laughs> you can be anywhere to create your content. It's interesting that you bring up the popularity of foreign films. My 19-year-old daughter just watched um, a movie with me at Sundance, the online version of Sundance this year. And there was a two and a half hour movie uh, from Thailand. Mm -hmm. And I forget the name. I think it was called On the Road or something like that. But fantastic film for adults who are willing to go through the subtitle, you know, kind of mm -hmm. move through that. I was shocked that my daughter loved it and wanted to watch it again recently. And of course, it, it's not picked up yet, so we can't see it. Mm -hmm. But I'm seeing that foreign films are making it into the mainstream. Totally. And I think that younger people are starting to be open to that. And we're seeing on Netflix this Lupin series from France. And I'm really glad to see, as you put it, the melting of the borders so that we're experiencing other cultures. We are getting rid of those boundaries that keep them as the other. Right. We're not different from each other. We have way more in common, you know? Way more. It's a universal language. I mean, look at music. They have melted those borders a long time ago, from the beginning. Who doesn't listen to Brazilian music? Who doesn't listen to, you know, salsa music? You never think about, you know, oh, it's foreign. I'm not going to listen to it. So we are behind and we're catching up fast. Look at the film that won last year. It was from Korea. Uh, won, you know, Best Picture. That was a huge victory. Oh, Parasite? Parasite. Yeah. It's a huge victory. Not only that, this year we also have... So the way the international films work for the Oscars, each country chooses a film to submit. And then if it falls with all the regulations and, you know, theatrical release, etc., it goes into our hands for us to vote on. This year we had... A, a huge amount of documentaries that were chosen by their countries to represent the country, not a feature film. For example, a film from Chile, which I highly recommend. It's called The Mole Agent. That is a documentary film. The Painter and the Thief, that is a documentary film. And they were chosen by their countries to represent. And that is huge for us documentarians. We, mm. we, want, we, we, we don't want to be the stepkids of the feature film. We want to be, you know, we want to be honored. We want to have our place. Some people say we have to have our own Academy Awards because think about it. We, there were 240 films, feature docs submitted this year to the Academy, eligible for voting because there were no theatrical release requirement because that wasn't possible because of COVID. Right. And one only makes it. So we didn't have 240 feature films submitted. I wish we did. So you understand the proportions are not right. Right. 
I interviewed Raika Zetabshi a couple of times on this podcast, and she won for Best Documentary Short for the documentary. It's, it was on Netflix. It might still be. It's called Period, End of Sentence. Mm-hmm. And that was the first portal for me into documentary shorts and also feature-length documentaries where I started to really take them seriously. And that's also when I realized, like you're saying, there are so many high-quality films out there and just a few are being recognized because there's just one category at the Academy Awards right? and a few other awards ceremonies that give them honorable mention, not on camera usually. Right. Like the Golden Globes don't even have us in there. There's no documentary category in the Golden Globe. Right. It would be nice to see a separate honoring of that category. I agree. I agree. So what's next for you, Michelle? I tell everyone I'm in recovery mode. (laughs) Three years of hard work, 24-7, I need to kind of step back. But there's always, you know, there are some docuseries brewing that I'm considering. uh, And uh, there's two projects. One is actually about the Paul community, because I feel like there's a lot more to tell that couldn't fit. And I also want to focus on children again. I feel that children needs to be celebrated and I want to find the right project to to do that. So uh, stay tuned. I mean, you can always check on my Instagram or my website, streetdownrise.com. We we update everything. And so if you want to know more, you can follow me on social. That's great. And for my listeners, um, that's stripdownriseup.com. And if you want to follow Michelle on social media, she's at Michelle Ohian for Instagram and Twitter. And that's M-I-C-H-E-L-E. O-H-A-Y-O-N. And uh, she's a great follow, so check her out on social media. Michelle, it was really nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the interesting question. I enjoyed it very much. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.